Good evening, everybody. Um, hope you can see me around the corner. Or at least you can see Matthew properly. That's the important bit. Thank you all very, very much for turning out in such force tonight. Um, we were going to talk about Ed Miliband. We should just talk about Rupert Murdoch instead. <laughs> no, although we will come to that. Uh, my name's Charlie Beckett. I'm director of POLIS, which is the uh, media and society think tank here at the London School of Economics. Um, I first met Mehdig um, three or four years ago. Uh, we were doing a debate in Oxford about... Do you remember this? Yeah. Uh, it was, it, you, know, you remember the, the debate uh, in Oxford in the 1930s, you know, shall we go to war or something? This was an internet equivalent. It was, um, is the internet a good thing or not or something? And is it destroying journalism? That's it. Is the internet destroying journalism? And they took a pre-vote and it was something like 100 to 20 uh, in favour of the idea that the internet was destroying journalism. And um, I was lucky enough to have Mehdi on my side. And we turned that around, didn't we? We turned it around. So we left um, Oxford in a kind of warm glow of digital optimism. You know who on the other side was, on the losing side? Nick Davis, the hero of our age. That's right. Yeah, so there's a funny thing. That's a good point. Nick was actually on the other side arguing that the internet was, uh, you know, hell in a handcart. And I guess the happy um, uh, end result of this is that we've got uh, Nick Davis doing extraordinary journalism in his own way, and then we've got someone like Mehdi who is doing it all, really. He's a political editor of the New Statesman and, of course, one of the best operators on Twitter and uh, his blog as well. Um, he could, of course, actually been in the employ still of Rupert Murdoch indirectly because in his... Uh, illustrious TV career. He was at my former GAF ITN and then went to Channel 4. In between I went to Sky. And then in between was working at Sky for Mr Murdoch. So how history could have turned out. But anyway, he's now a fa a, an author of this terrific book um, which is uh, considering the, the haste, or not even considering the haste, is a remarkable piece of uh, political writing. Um, for somebody so young. And by that I don't mean him, I mean Ed Miliband, of course. Um, and afterwards, uh, Mehdi will be outside and you can buy copies and he's happy to, to sign those. Um, the format tonight was, was going to be with um, James McIntyre, uh, the co-author of the book, but unfortunately James has been completely overwhelmed by uh, the deadline for his magazine Prospect and uh, the news that we all know about. So... You're going to have to do with Mehdi on his own. But I think we've got enough to get through that will keep us busy for the next hour or so. Um, I wanted to kick off, though, really, just to um, get the ball rolling, really, Mehdi, to ask you a few questions myself before I let the rabble at you, um, which is... Uh, I wanted to start, really, at the... In a way, back at the Murdoch thing, really, um, today's news. Do you think... This is the topical question, really. Do you think that the way Ed Miliband spoke out when all around was still somewhat cowed, is it too strong to say this is a, a turning point in what has not yet been an entirely triumphant leadership? I think it is one of the turning points. I wouldn't sign up for the phrase, the turning point, because I always think of the Iraq war when George Bush told us every time something happened it was a turning point, so I'm not a confident in such phrases. But I think, actually, I've just written a column for this week's magazine in which I describe the last 10 days as, if you want to use a cliche, Ed Miliband's clause four, that a lot of his critics and supporters have been calling for something to show what he's all about, that shows a break 
uh, that can appeal to all sorts of people from all sides of the political spectrum. And I think this is it. I'm not saying it's all been thanks to him. He's a lot, a lot of luck, a lot of good timing. But I think he's the first Labour leader. He's the first party, major party leader of the two parties uh, of my lifetime, certainly, uh, to make a break from the headlock Rupert Murdoch has had politicians in for the past 30 years. I think that's very admirable. Uh, I think it's a, personally, I think it's a good thing, and I think only he really could have done it. When you see uh, Gordon Brown this morning, and it was, I don't know how many of you saw the Brown interview on the BBC, very emotional, um, and everything he said was true, of course, about how upsetting that was. Um, Gordon Brown, of course, is the man who spent 13 years alongside Tony Blair posing up to Rupert Murdoch and doing uh, so much uh, of the collusion that's led to this kind of huge crisis of confidence in the media, in politics and the police. Uh, it was Gordon Brown who did all those things from having slumber parties for Rebecca Brooks at Chequers uh, to crafting his speeches and tax policies around what he thought Rupert Murdoch wanted. So, yeah, when I look back on that and I look at what's going on over the last ten days, I think it's a good time to be Ed Miliband, it's a good time to be Labour leader. And why do you think, though, in a sense, why do you think that Ed... Uh, made that decision. Do you think this was another carefully honed, uh, studiously studied, you know, uh, calculating decision, or do you think there was something a bit more instinctive? No, I think I think there is a side of him. There's one side of him that's very, very uh, cautious, that's deliberative, uh, that takes its time to come to a conclusion. Right from his youth, we, t we talked to tutors of his at Oxford who said he would always be the last person in the class to make up his mind and come to a position, but when he did, he argued it better than anyone else in the class. So there's always been that side of him, but on the other hand, he does have this kind of instinctive uh, nature which can work for him against him. I would argue when he came out against Ken Clark and called for him to resign, uh, that was a mistake, and that was his own decision on the Wednesday morning before Prime Minister's questions. He decided to go for it. His team weren't so sure. He did it. Don't think it worked out for him. Don't think it was the right decision. This time last week, on Monday afternoon after we first heard the horrific revelations about Millie Dowler's uh, phone being hacked. Uh, that is when they started thinking about and that's when he started leading his team into, well, what do we do on Wednesday? What do we do tomorrow? When do we call for Rebecca Brooks to go? And let's not forget, his own director of strategy, who's now come under the spotlight, Tom Baldwin, sent out a memo in January saying to all shadow cabinet ministers, do not link the acquisition of B Sky B by News Corp to the phone hacking scandal with News International and News of the World. Ed Miliband basically tore up that memo last week and did it. He's the one who linked it and said, we can no longer have Rupert Murdoch taking over B-Sky B. And basically, every one of his calls has been vindicated. I mean, Mary Riddle in The Telegraph today makes a very good point that you have the Prime Minister dancing to the tune of the Leader of the Opposition. Doesn't happen very often. Certainly hasn't happened for Ed Miliband over the last nine months. She also used some phrase about a tortoise, though, didn't she? Yeah, yeah perhaps. That's the deliberative side. That's the deliberative side. Um, we'll, we'll probably come back to the, the sort of Murdoch thing, because it is a remarkable moment. It may not be, perhaps, the most important issue on the table with the economy and health and so on, but the, the sort of collective... But it influences all those it? issues, yeah. because you cannot underestimate the role that the media, what I would call the right-wing echo chamber, plays in this mm. country in setting the parameters and limits of debate, and the way in which Labour leaders in particular have been forced to operate on a very narrow space of political terrain. Mm. And when you can break free from that and say, actually, uh, you guys have no credibility left, and actually, I'm not going to kowtow to you, and if you threaten me with, quote, repercussions, which is what Ed Miliband's uh, had a threat from News International, so be it. I think that's hugely liberating for a Labour leader. I mean, if, again, you read the memoirs of all the people who worked around Blair and Brown, you read Blair's own memoir. These guys were, you know, Lance Price referred to Rupert Murdoch as the 24th member of the cabinet. Yeah. He was always there, if not physically, his presence was felt.
Yeah. I think it's hugely liberating for a party leader to say, actually, get out. Yeah. And in a way, Ed Miliband is somebody who is, is, is extremely constrained, isn't he? Um, I'm thinking, if, you, if we were to go right back to uh, the biography of this man, that we are all uh, hugely conscious that, in a sense, he's kind of super determined. Then you have to think back to his, you know, uh, his family life. Here is somebody who, um, you know, the son of an illustrious uh, former, you know, professor of this place, you know, a huge figure of, of the left. Uh, we know who his brother is. Do you think, I mean, you've, the, the, the cover in the shadows is, the da- is David. Do you think that, in a sense, the biography and his career is really a tale of two people, at least? I think to some extent it is, which is why we put David on the cover and we put the subtitle uh, The Millibands and the Making of a Labour Leader. But on the other hand, in, in other ways, it isn't. The way it is, is basically, you can't get away from the fact, on paper, Ed Miliband's life basically mirrored that of David's, and he, he literally followed in the footsteps of his brother. Uh, you know, they went to the same schools together, they both went to Havelstock Comprehensive together, they then both went to uh, Corpus Christi College, uh, Oxford, uh, together. They both did, the, well, together, one went four years ahead, the next, Ed followed his brother to Corpus, did the same degree as his brother, uh, he ran the Labour, he was the president of the Labour Club, David was the secretary of the Labour Club, David was president of the JCR at Corpus, four years later, Ed was president of the JCR at Corpus. David later on went off to uh, uh, Matters Massachusetts to the MIT uh, to do a postgrad. Ed later went off to Harvard to in in, Mass, in Boston uh, near Boston to, to study and, and uh, find his intellectual side. Uh, so David it, became so a spin doctor. Uh, David became a special advisor. Ed became a special advisor. David becomes an MP. Ed becomes an MP. Etc. Etc. So at this so point, the, at this point, David is really irritated, isn't he? <laughs> you know. Well, we don't know. That's the great. That's one for David Miliband's biographers, I guess. <laughs> when is the point where he actually thinks? What the hell are you doing behind me every time I turn around? Um, look, no, what we discovered writing the book is actually the two brothers had no conflict. There was no conflict between them. They were very close. Uh, they were very close. Uh, they got on well. The fact that they went to the same university, you know, there were other reasons for that. We mentioned a very uh, a tutor of theirs who was very influential, friend of the family, Andrew Glynn. Uh, they both entered the Labour Party together. And then, actually... When they were in the Labour Party, people think they were kind of hanging out together. Their paths actually diverged. I mean, one was working in the Treasury uh, on, on, on policies for the Chancellor, Ed Miliband, and David, for the first few years, was working for Tony Blair in Number 10 on policy. It meant he never really left Number 10. It was an inward-looking role. It wasn't one that reached out to different departments. And then he went off and became an MP for South Shields in 2001. Uh, Ed becomes an MP in 2005. Actually, their paths don't really cross professionally. Personally, weirdly, at one stage, he's living on top of his brother. They're living in a kind of uh, flat, one on top of the other, with David and his wife Louise living below Bachelor Ed. Uh, and, and they're so close in their personal life that the door was left open between the two flats, and they would just come and go between them. They would share stuff. Um, the only time you really see the public expression of the division between them is in the final few years of the Labour government when Gordon Brown is on his way out. David has become the number one challenger and Ed is torn between his kind of biological loyalty towards his elder brother and his political loyalties towards his kind of yeah. political father, Gordon Brown. And take us through that because that's one of the sort of critical moments where people who both support Ed and those who criticise him say... At that point when David should have been challenging Gordon Brown, 
that Ed undermined him, and those who support Ed say this shows that his cunning and his, uh, you know, his aptitude for mm. power himself. Yeah. How important was that episode, and how much do you really believe, even what you wrote yourself? Mm, well, <laughs> well, the two of us were writing, don't forget, yeah. and the two of us were torn uh, in our own views. Just out of interest in the hall here, just on a non-political level, how many of you here, because this is something that my co-author and I had many discussions about, and how many of you here think it was wrong for Ed Miliband to challenge his brother, or any brother, mm. to go up against a brother in that way. You couldn't do it and you think it's actually wrong. Minority. <laughs> See, I started off thinking that, but then I switched my position kind of as time went on last year. Uh, my co-author probably less so. Um, and that's one of the things that feeds into this thing. It's not just about politics. Yeah. People who don't follow, my wife doesn't follow politics at all. Uh, she wouldn't know Ed from David. But when she was following the story and I was explaining to her, you know, her visceral reaction was, that's weird. And most people's reaction is, that's odd. And there's certainly that's been hard for Ed to overcome. Uh, but that feeds into a lot of it. A lot of David's supporters and David himself were kind of shocked that he was standing against his brother. You talk about the p political side of things. We explore these kind of claims that Ed actually went out of his way to stop David from running so that he could run later. Because had David actually, to use the, the media phrase, got the bottle to challenge Gordon, he would have beaten Gordon and he would have been Prime Minister. And he may have beaten David Cameron, given how badly the Conservatives did last year. And that would have been Ed's chance gone, the idea that there would have been kind of two Miliband brothers in a row. In fact, as we report in the book, uh, during the middle of the Labour leadership campaign, a friend of Ed Miliband stops him on the Commons Terrace and says, why are you running? And he says, because I've got things I want to say. I think I've got my own position. And he's, the friend says, but isn't it also because you think that you can't have two Millibands in a row? And he says, yes, that too. Uh, so I think he was very aware of the kind of restrictions around the fact that there were these two brothers. They were both had a lot of potential, a lot of talent. When you explore that kind of heated period from 07, when Gordon Brown hesitates about calling an election in the autumn, and from there on, it's downhill all the way for Brown. And that awful 2008 where he loses by-elections and he's got all sorts of plots going against him and David Miliband writes an article in The Guardian which is seen as an attack. During that period, certainly Ed rallies around Gordon Brown and doesn't back his brother. But think how weird a position that is for you. That you're working for this guy for over a decade, Gordon Brown has been your mentor, your boss, your teacher, your friend, your ally, your political father. And then you've got a guy who's clearly challenging him. Everyone knows that if Brown goes, it's going to be because of David. And that guy happens to be your elder brother. I mean, talk about rock and hard place. And there is this moment when David writes the Guardian article, and he's getting it from both sides, in a sense. And there is this moment where Gordon Brown rings up Ed Miliband in the, in the summer of 2008, after this David article comes out, saying, what the hell is going on in typical Brown fury manner? Um, saying, what the hell's going on? What do you know about this? And Ed says, I don't know anything about this. He didn't check with me, he didn't talk to me. He then rings David, and David says, well, you know, I did what I had to do, and what else was I supposed to do? And Ed says, well, you didn't have to do it this way. And then other friends of Ed and David ring up Ed and say, well, why is David doing this? And eventually Ed becomes frustrated. He says, I am not my brother's keeper. And there is this sense where they were both, from a very young age, both brothers and the family they grew up in, they were both treated like adults, from a much younger age than maybe you and I would have been by our parents. They were given responsibility at a very young age. They matured at a very age. They had an elderly father who, they, who became ill and they, uh, they, you know, they were at his bedside in teenagers. Uh, and, and there was that sense where it was all very serious and very adult-like and very mature. Some would argue a bit unemotional. I mean, we spoke to a, a, a former special advisor who was very friends with both of them. And he says, look, I like them both. They're both talented, but there's no doubt they're both really weird. 
You know, there's no, you know, there are not, they're not the kind of brothers who get that actually you need to be talking all this out. You can't be so formal with each other. Yeah. You can't be, you know, you have to be brothers first and I mean, politicians second. I mean, there is, on the constrained theme, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the role, we don't talk, we don't hear so much about the role of their mother. Um, you know, do you think, in a sense, there is a sort of psychological block still? Uh, I mean, probably more for David, actually. I mean, you know, those people have had, you know, if you've had contact with David in that period, it's still extraordinarily raw. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's impossible for him to yes. be normal. And yet, Ed, is it because he won or because he's the youngest one, feels somehow more able to overcome that sort of psychological... Well, I think he's able to overcome it because he won. Yeah. I think had he not won, I think he would have overcome it better because he was not—he was the underdog. It, he wasn't supposed, yeah. it wasn't supposed to be his turn. For, if you're David Miliband, you've been told for a decade that you're the, you're the golden child. Mm. You're next. You're the Wayne Rooney of my cabinet, to use Tony Blair's phrase. Mm. Uh, you are the guy who's going to... Uh, well, exactly, with all the implications of that. You are the guy who is seen as the future of the Labour Party for at least 10 to 15 years. You know, mm. He was being talked about as a leader right from when he's working for Blair in, in, in Downing Street from 97 onwards. And to go all that way, and he starts off the campaign as the favourite. At one stage, Ed Miliband is 33 to 1 outsider. And, and one of David's problems is he never really took Ed seriously as a threat. So he always thought, well, I'm going to win. My brother's having a go at it. Good for him. It's positioning for him. And I don't think he ever really... What our understanding is he never really stood... Friends of David will ask him, and he would kind of dismiss Ed in, in, in the months running up to general election. Is Ed going to run? David didn't take it seriously. He now says he always knew, but I, I, I disagree with that. And Ed, of course, was the younger brother, was the underdog, came late to the decision. He only started thinking about running for leader. And it's very hard to pin down when Ed started thinking about running for leader. I mean, we interviewed him twice for the book. We talked to everyone around him. It's like pinning down, uh, you know, when did George Bush decide to invade Iraq? You know, or the famous phrase about Eamon de Valera, it's like, you know, picking up mercury with a fork. It's very hard to get... Uh, was there a day where he woke up and said, I'm going to run? No. But he started thinking about it in kind of 08, 09 especially when he becomes climate change secretary and has kind of this very high profile uh, in the run-up to Copenhagen. And he's only thinking about a couple of years. Had he not won, he would have probably been rather upset about it. But I don't think he was invested in it as much as David was. Having said that, clearly he ran a much more focused campaign because in the end he won, and I suspect he won because he wanted it more, because he worked harder for it, because he wasn't as complacent as his elder brother, because he was the insurgent and his brother was the favourite and the establishment candidate. And, you know, we make the comparison in the book. In fact, there's a discussion in the White House in the middle of the Labour leadership campaign where David Muir, who was Gordon Brown's director of strategy, goes out to the White House and bumps into David Axelrod uh, near the Oval Office, who was, of course, Obama's chief strategist in 2008. And Axelrod said, what's going on in Britain? What's going on with these Miliband brothers? Which was David's going to win, right? And everyone in America has only heard of David because he's the foreign secretary. Who's heard of Ed? And he says, and David Muir says, no, I think Ed's going to win. And Axelrod said, well, that's not what we're hearing. David's the favourite. And he says, no, he says, no, look. David's at 100%. He's doing, this is what, what you see with David is what you're going to get. Ed's at 80%, and he can, he's going to only get better, and he's the insurgent, and you should know from Obama Clinton. And can Axelrod smiles to himself because that was the same campaign that Obama ran in the primaries against the establishment. And it was, of course, quite a strange Of course, election. Obama and Hillary weren't brother and sister. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, in a, yeah, in a, no, they weren't. Um, it's a very strange election as well, though, wasn't it? I mean, one of the, the, the undercurrents of it was that the... The, the sort of grassroots which kind of won it for him, for Ed, were somehow vaguely more leftish. And, uh, and I wonder how much you think 
Ed has been constrained by the other part of his life, you mentioned it, the other father, if you like, the Gordon Brown mm. legacy, both in style but also in substance, because it's still not clear, really, is it, what, um, what difference there really is in any great substance between, well, David or Ed, but Ed and anybody. I mean, how much do you I don't think agree, I'm not sure I agree with that. What do you mean by that? Well, how much does he redefine himself, either from Gordon mm. or from... I mean, David was saying similar things about, you know, mm. the grassroots renewal of the party. Yes. We've got to uh, own up to the fact that things went wrong. And Pro- the problem that David had, and he would have won had he done it, was he, he could not disown the past in the same way that Ed could. Ed was less invested in the past. And one of the things we explore in the book is that Ed, while he was a creature of New Labour, let's not pretend he was anything other than a creature of New Labour, he was a special advisor for the Chancellor of the Exchequer and a cabinet minister under the next prime minister, all the way through, he was always semi-detached. And this is what we get from friends, this is what we get from people who have no reason to make this up, people who were in Harvard with him, mm. who remember that he went to Harvard in 2002 to get away from Gordon Brown, to get away from the Treasury, to get away from uh, New Labour. And what a great time to go away, it was in the run-up to Iraq. Uh, and Ed goes away to Harvard to do a sabbatical for a year and a half. Uh, and people out there say, you know, he was always loyal to Gordon, but clearly he had issues with, for example, New Labour's failure to do anything about the gap between the rich and poor. When he taught classes at Harvard in his very first class, Class. It was called the Politics uh, um, of Social Justice. When he does his first class, he plays the video, uh, as some of you may remember this, from the 2001 general election uh, where Jeremy Paxman interviews Tony Blair and asks him again and again, does the gap between rich and poor matter? And Blair, being Blair, dodges the question again and again and says, I'm not in politics to make David Beckham poorer. And he only will say, look, I will help the poor, but he's not going to do anything. Blair's point was, you know, the gap does not matter. For Ed, the gap matters very much. That's one of his core, that's one of the things that does drive him in terms of political beliefs. And that's one of the things he had a problem with about the Labour government. And that's why we've heard much more about that. If you look at some of the speeches he's given in recent months as becoming leader, uh, we've heard much more about that. The whole concept of the squeeze middle is about the gap between the very top and the Rest of, and the rest of society, which is now uh, much more exacerbated, will only get worse. I, I think there are other things. Uh, yes, you're right, on policy issues, David did come up with mansion tax and other things. It was attitudinal. As I said, you, know, you talk about Obama and Clinton. It was about a candidate representing a break from the past. You could not have 13 years of Labour government and then have another Labour leader who was not willing to own up to everything that that government did wrong. Did a lot of good things, but it didn't do... I mean, the classic example on a non-domestic policy is Iraq, which to the very end, uh, David couldn't get over. Uh, David couldn't distance himself from. Some would say that's an admirable principle. Mm-hmm. Others would say that's suicidal when you're running for leader of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, some of the issues that Ed campaigned on, you, you, know, you say left-wing... Yeah, you know, they were, they were the ones that, that appealed to the grassroots, the living wage, the high pay commission, etc., uh, etc. Et he certainly got all those things right to, in terms of running his candidacy. He was running for leader of the Labour Party and he understood what he needed to do to do it. I mean, it was ruthless in a way, but also admirable. Last sort of bit of questioning is on, if you like, the kind of last constraints, which is that time, in a sense, is against him. Obviously, he wants to make an impact... He, there's an election, I know it's not looming imminently, but... Um, Never know. But the, well, indeed. Uh, and trends, in a way, get set, don't they? And that he had to rapidly make an impact uh, and a, achieve profile and also start getting traction of, mm. as, the, as leader of the opposition. And the figures seem to show that he hasn't done that, that the uh, ratings from the public are not just low in terms of recognition, but they're actually hostile. 
people see him ha as a bit weird if they see him at all mm. um, and that when they uh, see what he does he doesn't seem entirely uh, comfortable yet in what he's doing I mean there was the you know the, the Martin Luther, Luther King business uh, the trade union uh, speech when he, he wanted to have it both ways he wanted to be there and yet somehow uh, distance himself from it um, he's not really got into his stride yet has he? Well first of all I'm not whether you, well, first of all, the last 10 days has changed everything to a start. Even if you believe he didn't have a stride, get into a stride beforehand, I don't think you can say that over the last 10 days where he's clearly led the debate uh, on Murdoch. Uh, even, you know, Nick Clegg, the great change candidate, has come very late to it. David Cameron obviously is playing catch up, if at all. Um, I think on the metrics, his personal power ratings are abysmal. They're, they're, as worse, they're as bad as Ian Duncan Smith, if not worse, mm. uh, which is not good, um, uh, to say the least. I think he's awful on television. I think he made a mistake hiring two uh, print journalists, Tom Baldwin and Bob Roberts, to be his media team and not hiring anyone with any television background because ultimately we still live in a televisual age despite everything, newspapers, internet, Facebook, television is still the number one medium by which people get their information and perceptions. I think you're being a little bit unfair to him on the numbers overall. I mean, look, the polls at the weekend showed Labour an eight-point lead. Uh, in the opinion polls. If a general election were held tomorrow, that would give Labour a majority of something like 90 or 100 seats. He's won four by-elections, all with increased shares of the vote uh, over previous general elections. Um, uh, and actually, the party, despite the grumblings from some Blairites and David, you know, unre unreconciled David supporters, is actually pretty united compared to a lot of other oppositions that have gone, uh, that have, you know, that have lost power after a long time in office. You compare the Tories under Hague in 97. I mean, Labour had their second worst election defeat since 1918 last year. Uh, they dropped to 29% of the vote. They'd had 13 years of government which tired them out. They'd had 13 years of the TBGBs, the Blair-Brown Wars. Pretty hard for anyone taking over. I actually think if you look at it in that sense, and yes, you know, we've had less than a year, I think he's done pretty, pretty well. As for his personal ratings, it's very hard to get high personal ratings if you're leader of the opposition. Uh, you know, leaders of the opposition tend not to get much publicity, tend not to get much attention, especially Labour leaders of the opposition. In fact, if you look over the last 30, 40 years, the only person who's broken that duck is Tony Blair. And even Tony Blair, I mean, he came to office at a period in the Tory government where Major in 94 was you know, at an all-time low with all those scandals and having been in office for 15 years. And Blair, even Blair, people have short memories. Blair was condemned as Bambi. He was called inexperienced, all sorts of names. I mean, relatively much less than others have endured, like William Hague IDS and now Ed Miliband. But I think, you know, get some perspective, take a step back. And yes, there is time. The next general election is officially 2015. Uh, the Labour team say, well, look, you know, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Uh, there's, a, there's an element of truth to that. There's also the case you make, which is we live in an age where people make up their minds very quickly. We have much shorter attention spans than our parents' or our grandparents' generations. You know, you want instant results on a 24-7 uh, media and 24-hour news channel. So in that sense, yes, he does have to define himself quickly. I think, and I hope, fingers crossed, as someone who's a kind of critical friend of his, I would say that this recent crisis, this ongoing crisis could be that moment, it could be the kind of moment of luck, what Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknown that's come out of nowhere that he can exploit. Yeah. Last point what about the other Ed, the other constraint if you like, which is that um, I can't think of any opposition politician, including perhaps Ed Miliband, who has been as successful as Ed Balls mm. in actually taking the fight and trying to shift in this in often quite short-term ways uh, to shift the battle, shift the point of, you know, the direction of travel and so on. Yes, on the economy. Uh, and Ed Balls is quite clearly somebody who would have liked to have had 
that job. Yes. We know that because he ran, obviously. Well, I mean... Um, is, are, is, he, is history repeating itself? Is there another yeah. you know, TBGB? It's one of the things we explore in the book. I mean, look, one of the, th- one of the key themes of Ed Miliband's life, what's so interesting about his life, is that he emerges from several people's shadows. Uh, it's not just David. I mean, David is the most obvious one whose shadow he emerges from uh, in many ways. Uh, but there's also his father, as we mentioned, Professor Ralph Miliband of the London School of Economics, one of the great, you know, one of the great, well-known, famous, influential uh, Marxist thinkers of his time, a man who had very little time uh, for the Labour Party's approach to politics, uh, and yet his two sons uh, split up over uh, trying to be leader of it. Um, uh, he emerges from his father's shadow quite early on as a teenager. He, he, you know, this is when he starts thinking before he goes to Oxford. You know, I agree with my father's values, his passions, his intellects, his love of debate, uh, but he's too sectarian. He's too narrow-minded. He's too close-minded. He's too dogmatic. Uh, and you know, this is where Ed starts following a much more pragmatic ground, uh, you know, what's called a Crosslandite revisionist approach uh, to labour and social democracy rather than uh, Marxist socialism. So he emerges from his father's shadow, and then before we get to the David shadow, there is Ed Balls. Because Ed Balls is the, is the big Ed, big Ed and little Ed. In fact, when they were at the Treasury, Ed Balls was called Ed, and Ed Miliband was called Ed Miliband, just to show you know, who is the connection. And Ed Balls was always a senior partner. He had the bigger office. He had the better view. He had the better <laughs> access to Gordon Brown. Uh, you know, things went through him. Civil servants went to him over Ed Miliband. And there was always that sense that, well, if one of them was going to be the leader, if one of them was going to challenge David on behalf of the Brownites against the Blairites, it would be Ed Balls. People didn't see this coming. I don't think Ed Balls saw it coming. He, again, he says now, I've spoken to him, oh, yeah, I knew Ed Miliband would run. Well, maybe he did kind of a few weeks or months before. He certainly didn't know it in the late 90s, early noughties when he was planning his own political career path to become an MP and then get into cabinet and challenge the Blairite for the job. And, you know, here you have Ed Miliband, who was always his junior, uh, coming out of his shadow as well. And you say, is it going to be a repeat of Blair Brown? We explore that in the book, and there is that very real danger. The difference being this time, of course, is that Brown and Blair never had the leadership contest in 94. Mm. So Brown went away brooding, thinking, I could have beaten him. He couldn't have beaten him. But he always thought, and the Brown, to be a member of the Brown inner circle, you had to sign up to this belief that Brown was robbed, and Brown would have beaten Blair if there'd been a contest, and that nasty Peter Mandelson hadn't mm. shifted it all to Blair. Uh, difference this time is, Ed Miliband ran, he beat David, he beat David, there's a controversy over the trade unions, how narrow it was, winning one. With Ed Balls, there was no competition. I mean, Ed Balls got smashed. He became a, a, a miserable third, and there was dangers. There were people in his camp were telling me the week before they were worried about coming fourth or fifth. Now, he's Shadow Chancellor. In fact, I saw him last night. He's enjoying being Shadow Chancellor. I think he wants to be Chancellor's checker. I think he's enjoying going up against George Osborne. It's what he does best. He's clearly the best opposition politician by a mile. But I think he knows. He, I think, you know... Even the most arrogant and thin-skinned of politicians, uh, sorry, arrogant and thick-skinned of politicians, would, you know, getting beaten like that, would think, hmm. And it's been less than a year. I'm sure he has leadership ambitions in the future. Right now, I think he knows his future is tied to Ed Miliband's. If he wants to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, Ed Miliband has to be Prime Minister, and for that to happen, they have to work together. Yeah. And will that happen, we ask ourselves. Um, so, let's throw it Look, Nick Clegg is Deputy Prime Minister, anything can Yeah, happen. that's true, yes. <laughs> uh, and Rupert Murdoch can withdraw from a exactly. merger these strange and wonderful times. So, questions from the floor. Can I bring the microphones around? We've got one at the front here, please. And um, up the top as well, feel free to contribute. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask uh, whether you feel Ed Miliband's got what it takes to transform the Labour Party from its appalling performance last year, which you quite rightly mentioned, into a party of government in particular. If you could just give us some idea of the type of policy themes you should 
Charity, became leader because of the anomalies of the Electoral College. Do you think he's got what it takes to perhaps create a new relationship between the Labour Party and the trade unions, not unlike what Tony Blair did with Clause 4 15 years ago? Uh, both uh, good questions. Um, let me go backwards. Let's take the trade union issue. I think the trade union issue is a very, very difficult one for him. And uh, Charlie already alluded to it with uh, his decision to go and speak at the Hyde Park rally, which I think was a, the right decision. It's probably one that David wouldn't have taken. Uh, but then there was issues about you know, some of his bombastic rhetoric. Um, I think it's a real problem for him with the unions because, because he won and is seen to have won with the support of the unions. Uh, in a sense, he's... he's he wants to run in the other direction even more than perhaps his brother would have done had he won. Uh, he wants to show greater distance between him and the unions. Uh, and I think it's a real tightrope to walk on. So when you have public sector strikes, he comes out and gives that weird robotic interview where he said the same thing seven times, um, where he says it's wrong and what they did was wrong and going on strike was wrong. And it wasn't in tune with Labour Party members. All the polls showed that Labour members, Labour voters supported the strike on the 30th of June. Forthcoming strikes will be popular as well. He, however, is in that difficult position. I feel for him because, on the one hand, he wants to be a kind of putative, putative plausible prime minister in waiting, so he can't be seen to join every rally, every protest, every strike going. He has to show some distance. On the other hand, given the, uh, uh, given the coalition's economic policies, uh, which are leading to all sorts of issues, and I believe there will be greater discontent in the coming months, it would be mad if he then didn't try and exploit some of that anger and discontent against the coalition. He'll be in this, he, the danger is he finds himself in some no-man's land, uh, where on the one, one hand he's attacking the government, but on the other hand he's not then putting himself at the forefront of a popular opposition or a popular grassroots movement against cuts, against austerity, uh, against kind of... Um, the madness of zero growth. Um, on the subject of um, uh, whether, he, what was your first question? Sorry, your, about whether he has what it takes. Basically, has he got the ability to transform the Labour Party back to the party government over a one-year term? Well, over a five-year term, it's very difficult um, for a le any leader of the opposition. Again, a lot of people just make kind of sweeping statements about British politics these days, and. You know, they don't look at the history books and they don't look at context. I mean, you have to go back to Margaret Thatcher in 1974, uh, 75, when she becomes leader of the opposition for a time when a leader of the opposition goes from opposition back into government in basically one term. Uh, it's not a common feature of post-war British politics that a party is ejected from government and goes straight back into government a few years later with a working majority. Um, so, you know, in that sense, the, car, uh, the deck is stacked against him. It's quite hard to do that. On the other hand, he's got the advantage of the fact that he's not up against a majority government. He's up against a hung parliament and a coalition government, which is unprecedented uh, in, po in the post-war era. That's never happened. So, again... All these people who make sweeping statements, well, what's the basis for those statements? We don't have anything to compare against. We don't know what it's like, to, what the swing's like uh, when you're going up against a coalition government. We don't know what, how a coalition government will operate under the TV debates. I mean, I think one of the great opportunities for Ed Miliband will be when the TV debates comes. I mean, can you imagine if you're the leader of the opposition going into the TV debates against Nick Clegg and David Cameron? I mean, what are they, I mean, you heard Nick Clegg's view on a mic that was still on. What are we going to disagree on, David, in the TV debates? You would just stand in the middle saying, these two, these two. You would play the role that Clegg played last year when he set himself apart from the two main parties and did this kind of outsider. That'll be all Ed Miliband's turf. 
There would be no way that the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister would be able to disconnect themselves from each other. So I think there's lots of things in his favour. There's some things against him. Uh, I think in terms of getting the party together, as I said to Charlie, think about where the party was last May. Think about where the Tories were in 1997. The crazy madness over Europe uh, in the wake of 1997 defeat. The Labour Party is not in that position at the moment. It is actually relatively uh, unified in that sense, comparatively speaking. And he is someone who's now, look at the, look at the step he's taken with shadow cabinet elections. An excellent move, which Blair didn't do uh, over you know, 13 years of, of leadership. Uh, he's got rid of these shadow cabinet elections, which is a real anachronism which prevents you from coming across as a party government, because you end up having people in your shadow cabinet that you don't want to take with you into government. So Tony Blair, when he became Prime Minister in 1997, he had Gavin Strang and Michael Meacher in the shadow cabinet. He immediately promptly demoted Michael Meacher and then sacked Gavin Strang a couple of years later. So Ed Miliband is making moves uh, to look serious. Sometimes you have to be careful about it. This is just my own personal take here. Feel free to disagree. I do worry when people kind of invoke seriousness, which really is just code for being right-wing, which means I'm going to be serious and serious and proper, which means I won't do anything radical or bold or brave. I'll just be really cautious and stay on the kind of centre-right ground. We have to be, there's, a, there's a balance to be struck between coming across as a competent, grown-up, serious party of government and just kind of hedging your bets and following the tabloids. As I said, the last 10 days, what's so fascinating is hopefully, certainly the Sun News of the World headlock has gone uh, will the male headlock go too? Actually the, the demise of Murdoch could actually empower Paul Dacre in the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday in a way, so it's not all over it's still going to be a pretty uphill battle in terms of his relations with the media and just remember one thing, there's a, quite a nice line one of his advisors came up with and I'll repeat his spin to you all and you can see what you think of it, he says look what he's got can't be learned uh, what he's not got, he can learn. And I think, I think, for example, the TV thing, he needs to sort himself out on television. He comes across as wooden, nervous, rabbit in the headlights. Uh, he doesn't sometimes know which camera to look at, uh, awkward. But actually, if you meet him in the flesh, and you know, I've been doing this, I've been doing political journalism for about two, three years now as a, as a, as a reporter and columnist, and I worked in political television before. I can honestly say of all the politicians I've ever met, he's one of the most, if not the most, normal when you meet and talk to him. The problem is he needs to get that across on television. He gets it across in rooms like this. When he ran his leadership campaign, when he ran the Copenhagen campaign, he won over huge groups of people because they thought, actually, this guy connects with the audience. That guy's got a bit of emotion. This guy, uh, you know, he's got, you know, he's, he can, he's got empathy. It's a great skill, which David, in a way, didn't have, which is why... Ed's people used all those signs saying Ed speaks human, which really, really pissed off David and still does uh, today because uh, he rightly saw it as an attack on his own kind of gaucheness. Um, so I do think he's got lots of qualities, but it's an uphill struggle. Uh, I don't think any of us know what's going to happen next year or let alone 2015. And, and as you say, he's great in person, but it is, it is a media age, isn't it? Um, any other questions, please? Loads. Okay, let's start one there. I'll take one of the two. Yeah, let's take three, actually. Um, so, please, go ahead. Thank you. Over the past few days, we've heard a great deal about a newspaper proprietor. Yeah. Isn't it what the right honourable Anthony Blair called the froth of politics? The what of politics? Froth. The froth. Okay. Then we've got one at the top. Uh, over the next few months, what set of positions or demands or uh, a relationship should Ed Miliband devise in relation to the press and its regulation and the media? So it's froth, but what are you going to do about the froth? <laughs> Please. Um, I think about two weeks ago, the 
there was something that broke that Ed Miliband did that thing on where he was recorded uh, an answer for something and he gave yeah, the yeah. same answer mm. like five, six times. I was wondering what you think the impact of that was because he lost a lot of credibility. Okay. Yeah, okay. Three media-related questions. By answering right. them, you're going to answer the first one, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, let's go backwards then. So let's take the last one on the, the robo-interview uh, that Ed gave uh, to the BBC pool. On the one hand, I felt sorry for him because having worked in television, uh, when you do an interview, uh, when you do these kind of interviews for the nightly news, for a package, for a report on the news, all party leaders, all politicians are taught, you know, do the line again and again. They're only going to take one of them. Make sure you get the line right and repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and get it so it's clipped. So on the 10 o'clock news, when you and I watch, we see Ed Miliband going... Today's announcement is outrageous, the loss of jobs, blah, blah, blah. Um, he did that for the strike. The problem, is, the problem he had is, one is, uh, they ran the whole video on the BBC, um, which perhaps his press team should have been aware of. Uh, and, and two is, the way he did it was, uh, even if he'd just done it once, it was pretty bad, let alone seven times. That's why I say, uh, you know, he really needs to sort out how he, how he talks to a camera and how he gets a message across. And it showed naivety and it showed a bit of an experience and it showed a, a press team who weren't quite in control of what was going on and what was being done uh, with the footage. As for his credibility, I, I thought his credibility was pretty badly harmed by it at the time. Uh, but, you know, as, as one of his predecessors, Harold Wilson, famously said, a week is a long time in politics. I think you look now, we are in the middle of perhaps the greatest political and media scandal of the decade, if not our lifetimes. Who knows where it's going to go? We've got, you know, police corruption. Uh, we've got a prime minister in bed with a media empire that was involved in criminal activities. We've got the biggest selling English language newspaper in the world has been shut down uh, in a blink of an eye. It's a pretty huge story. And Ed Miliband, as I said at the start, has been riding that wave pretty well. Even his critics and opponents, uh, you know, the, the Janet Dailies of this world have come out and said, actually, he's right about a lot of stuff that he's saying. So I think when you look back on it now, that seems so irrelevant relevant, such as the enormity of the story that came a few days later. And, and the last, what, seven, eight days he's played a blinder. Uh, he bested David Cameron at Prime Minister's Questions last week, which is good for your confidence, because a lot of the time, a lot of the kind of talk of his leadership in crisis is often after a bad performance of Prime Minister's Questions. Tomorrow we're going to see him at the dispatch box again. Will he get two for two? He's got another open goal, given how badly David Cameron's doing. Um, surely he should just start off by saying, nice, you can make it today, given that David Cameron didn't turn up yesterday for the, for the debate. Bizarre, he went off to relaunch the big society for the seventh time. Um, but, um, so I think, actually, in the perspective, his credibility is all right, given it depends where this goes now. And there's an issue about his own Tom Baldwin, who we mentioned earlier, his own director of strategy, which some of us hope won't come back and bite him in the backside. Um, on froth, I mean, I don't think it is froth. I think it's huge. I think this is... a I think this is a major, major moment for the last uh, 30 years. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has basically been an honorary member of every British government when no one voted for him. He pays hardly any tax. He doesn't even live here. And I think it's a major moment that you have the three-party leaders, you have the public, you have other newspapers. The Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph coming out against the News of the World last Tuesday was a crucial moment because they had been silent up until that point. And it's a major moment now for our media. And our media is so important that the moment itself becomes uh, intensified. And, uh, and I, think, I think he's right to have, as I say, tore up his own director of strategies memo and gone on the attack against Murdoch. The downside is, and the worry for him is, in four years' time, British, the great British public have very short memories and memories of Millie Dowler and Gordon Brown's kid cystic fibrosis and police officers taking bribes may have faded in four years 
And yet, in four years' time, we'll probably still have the sun, though you never know, given the way things are going. And the sun will be gunning for him. News International already told Ed Miliband, there will be repercussions for you, and we are coming for you. I'm not sure what more they can do, perhaps put his head in a light bulb, as they did for one of his predecessors in 1992. So that's the downside of that story. But I think he's right for him to start. He had a shadow cabinet at this meeting this morning. I'm told that some shadow cabinet ministers raised the issue of News International's revenge and should they be worried? And Ed's position was, this is the right thing to do. At, at a moment like this, public anger is in such a place. There's such a crisis. You know, you had the financial crisis in 08, where we saw our politicians in hock with the bankers. You saw the uh, expenses crisis, where you saw politicians, regulators, parliamentary officials, all nudging and winking and giving each other uh, you know, permission to abuse taxpayers' cash. And now you have this crisis of the media, where you have the police, national newspaper editors, corporation owners, prime ministers, leaders of the opposition, etc., all in hock with each other. What's common to all of these things? None of us are involved. The public are cut out of this. There's no transparency. There's no democracy. There's no accountability. If a leader who came to office on the basis of change cannot take advantage of the public mood now, then he might as well quit and go home. But that's, that's an interesting point. What you just said, Ed isn't saying. That's not true. He's not. He's if you no, listen to his speech on not, Monday... He's not taking it in the same... He's not saying, look... Parliament was a bag of filth. The bankers are a disgrace. Well, I'm going to stand up for you. But hold on, hold on. If you put it in context, the day after our He's book was serialised and he was under fire, he gave a speech, quite important speech, which won plaudits, sometimes for the wrong reasons, where he attacked the bankers and talked about the lack of responsibility in society at both ends of society. And that theme about responsibility he alluded to in his speech last week. On Friday morning, he gave an impromptu press conference at, I think it was at Reuters, uh, and on Monday he gave another press conference speech. And yesterday in the Commons he was very strong, and we'll see what happens at Prime Minister. I think from what I'm told from what his people are saying he is building towards that position where this is about public decency this is about standards in public life this is about the responsibility of people at the top and I think he is edging towards that and you remember uh, you know you, you heard some of you may know this phrase blue labor which has come along which is supposed to be one of his guiding philosophies that he's kind of indulging and a lot of that is to do with our relationships with each other and democracy and community and and uh, and, and public life and decency uh, Peter Oborn on the right wrote a wonderful piece in the spectator mm. last week uh, about this very point and saying, you know, if the Conservatives have lost this, if David Cameron's lost this, somebody else can take advantage of this. And I think he is edging towards that. He's edging towards it more slowly than I am, because he's the leader of the Labour Party, and I'm not, and I can Indeed. just run my mouth. Not yet. But what about, so if, in answer to the question about what should be done about the media, what would an Ed Miliband, you know, a radical Ed Miliband position be? That, because in a sense, David Cameron has sort of caught up and said, yes, we'll have... Yes. We'll finally, yes, gosh, we'll, well have... Well, this is my own personal view, and I think Ed's, Ed, I think Ed Miliband's view is different. I think your view... I mean, my own personal view is I'm much less hesitant about regulation than a lot of my peers. I went to an event last night where every journalist in the room was lamenting the demise of News of the World and was uh, saying we can't go down the French route and regulation would be a disaster. And I think journalists are in the wrong place. I suspect you'll see that the public is in a different place. I think given the enormity and the scale of what we've seen in recent weeks, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, ladies and gentlemen, there's much more coming down the line. I think that there's, there's an unanswerable case for greater regulation. Whether it's statutory regulation or not, I don't know. I used to work in TV, Charlie, as you did. I'm much, you know, a lot of newspaper journalists get very excited about regulation. Those of us who have worked in TV, we know that there's something called Ofcom, which is a hugely powerful and heavy-handed regulator, which imposes very, very strict uh, conditions on impartiality, on bias, on right of reply, etc. Now, I'm not saying you have an Ofcom for the press, but the two extremes are bizarre. Why is it that broadcasting are held to such high standards 
And interestingly, the public on all polls showed that they trust broadcasters more than anyone else. Shock horror. And then you have the press, which is allowed to basically regulate itself, do whatever it likes. I mean, one example. The Daily Express, which I barely consider to be a newspaper, the, which publishes lie after lie, smear after smear about every single minority group in this country. The editor of the Daily Express pulled out of the Press Complaints Commission because he didn't even want that much regulation. The most toothless regulator in the country couldn't even keep the Express on board. So the idea that you can carry on with business as usual, I think everyone's accepted the PCC has to go. Uh, the issue is, I mean, I, if I was advising Ed Miliband, I would say, don't set any terms down. Say everything's up for grabs. Say you need to root a project. And again, he's edging towards that position. When Cameron came out and said, let's have an inquiry into phone hacking, Ed Miliband said, no, let's have an inquiry into practices, relationships between politicians and the media, uh, practices by newspapers outside of News International. What I was really enthused by, having been a bit depressed by his leadership in recent months, was an interview he did on The World at One on Friday, I think it was, when Sean Lay tried the gotcha question and he said, if you have a judicial inquiry into the press and politicians and those relations, you'll have Labour leaders turning up and with Blair and Brown having questions to answer. And then Milliman said, so be it. That has to happen. Yeah. And I think that's very important. And I, you know, with the greatest respect to David, I worry that if David Miliband were leader right now, I was thinking about this earlier today in the middle of this crisis, he would be taking slightly more, a less uh, forthright approach and he would be doing it a little bit more hedging and yeah. finding some space in the middle. And again, I, say, I don't think that's where the public is. Okay, let's try and find where the public is. And I should mention in a sort of little advertisement that tomorrow night we'll be debating that very subject about what should happen to the media in the, the wake of the phone hacking. String them up. I was going to say, and stringing up is not one of the options that <laughs> we're going to allow. Can we take one there? Oh, so we've only got one mic down here, have we? Uh, okay, we'll have to spread you around. But take one there, and then I'd like to take that lady at the end. Sorry to make you run around. Hi. Um, in his talk to Progress earlier in the week, Tony Blair said that um, Labour could win the next election if it remained New Labour. Um, do you consider Ed Miliband to be New Labour, or a progression of, or what his brother David called Next Labour? He's oh, let's take the three, shall we? Should we try and take three? Okay. Yeah. One up the top. This lady there, please. Yeah. Far away. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's more of an announcement as opposed to a question. Don't worry, it's nothing bad. Um, excuse me about this, Charlie and Meddy. But um, if anybody is uh, interested in meeting Ed Miliband in person <laughs> on Monday next week, um, he's going to be the special guest of honour at a fundraiser that Una, sorry, Baroness Una King is hosting at Ministry of Sound, so that's on Monday. And you can actually get tickets on, an, on Eventbrite. If you just Google Eventbrite, Una King okay. fundraiser with Ed Miliband. All right. Next Nicely Monday. done. Nicely done. Nicely Beautifully done. done. Next one. I have a question about the four years when all this Rupert Murdoch thing will have faded, probably. Mm. Um, do you think he can win back Scotland and go into the south of England? Because you said he won four by-elections but he didn't gain any seats, or he lost seats in Scotland and didn't mm. gain any in the South. Yeah. Okay, they kind of fit together, those two. Yes, okay, so uh, let's, do the, let's, let's do the backwards then. So on, 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 um, on the results, you're definitely right, but Scotland was a disaster. I think electorally that was his low point, no doubt about that. And it was also partly his fault. You can't just blame others. It, it was an awful campaign that he led. It was, you know, they already had an awful leader in Scotland, Ian Gray. And I think the line in Scotland was, you know, Gray by name, Gray by nature, and, uh, which didn't help him. And then you had Ed Miliband, who kind of 
uh, wafted in from London and said, uh, I think there was a rally where he said, you know, this is our first step back in Westminster, this is the first step to 2015, I'm going to come back, you're going to back me, etc. type speech, which of course shows no understanding of <laughs> politics in a devolution age. Uh, you know, people in Scotland were voting for things about Scotland, fair enough. Uh, and you had Ed Miliband who didn't actually cater to that message. Since then, you know, he's, what did he do the day after? He kind of set up a review uh, into what went wrong. Uh, we'll see what that says. I think the problem, I think one of the big problems, what's interesting about Scotland is, and not being an expert in Scottish politics, but what is interesting about Scotland is one of the big factors uh, for the SNP victory was not just about policies or politics or the mood, it was about the leader. It was about Alex Salmond, who is a charismatic leader, who uh, speaks his mind, who takes positions, is unafraid of uh, speaking his mind. Uh, and I think that is a model. You look across the country, you look at Boris Johnson in London. You know, we live in an age where actually we want politicians uh, to take positions. Perhaps we don't want these identikit politicians. And actually at Westminster, we have three party leaders who are all pretty much have very similar backgrounds, similar styles, uh, all ex-special advisors or ex-bureaucrats uh, of some shape or form. And I think that's something for Ed to to really look at in terms of you know, freeing himself to be himself. Alex Salmond, you never get the sense that he's being produced or managed. You get the sense that he's being Alex Salmond. Uh, and you know, there was, there's a line that we report on in the book uh, where you know, in the party conference and they're trying to come up with the speech uh, for his speech to give. And um, I don't know how many of you watched The West Wing, uh, but he, you know, everyone's saying, you should say this, you should be like this, you should be like this. And, and, and Ed says, let Miliband be Miliband in the kind of riff on let Bartlett be Bartlett. Uh, and you know, he understands that his strengths are, you know, he is a politician. He's arrogant enough and confident to know that actually he thinks he's good. And but, on, but on that, one of the, I mean, I was chatting just to, to one of his people the other day about one of, his uh, one of the speeches given, and I was saying, God, that was a dreadful, bland, convoluted, dull speech. Who the hell writes this crap? Ed, apparently. Um, that's not strictly true. I mean, he has a team of people well, who write stuff for him, but, one, you know, well, you know. which speech was it? Does that have interest in? Uh, let's go back a bit now. It's a couple of years ago. It wasn't a particularly major one, okay. so it's a bit unfair. It wasn't a rallying call. Well, as I said, he definitely needs, you know, the irony about Ed Miliband is, and it's not me saying it, you need to go back and go on YouTube when you go, when you go home tonight. It's still there. The, the first time people started talking about him as a leader was not when he produced some policy, was not when he did some kind of pass some piece of legislation, it's not when he did stabbed his brother in the front or back or whichever way he stabbed him. It was in actually, it was in the spring uh, Labour conference in 2007 uh, where he gives a speech without notes, David Cameron style. He gets up on stage, he takes off his jacket and he gives an impassioned speech about what Labour should stand for without any notes and it worked for Cameron against David Davis in 2005 and I remember we spoke to uh, a very, very senior Blairite cabinet minister who says that was the first time it came, he came on my radar as, as, as uh-oh, this guy could, could, stop, he could run and he could win and he might be good. Uh, and you know, that was the first time he emerged. It's ironic people saying now, well, he's not good at speaking. Well, actually he is, but clearly he's not doing something right right now. You know, in his leadership campaign, he inspired a lot of young people came to volunteer for him and not others because he was very good in rooms like this without notes, speaking freely, unproduced. When you put him in front of a podium or you put him in front of a camera, that's the problem he has and time is running out he, I'm, I'm the first to say he needs to sort that out I'm with you on that just very finishing quick that point there on the south of England I can't remember this off the top of my head he did gain, they did gain some council council seats clearly way not enough 
Um, and what does he do about that? It's a very good, it's a very, very good question. Now, I think that actually, if he can flesh out the idea of the squeeze middle, that's not a left-right issue. That's something that applies uh, across middle classes and working classes and however you define uh, those terms. Uh, that comes back to a uh, gentleman's question here about Blair. He didn't actually say Ed has to win his new Labour. In fact, he said, I don't mind if you drop the word new. You just have to embody the philosophy of change in the third way. And he talked about the centre ground uh, of politics, which is funny because, look, let me just be very clear. I'm not, I'm not a fan of Tony Blair and I don't share his politics uh, and I certainly don't share his approach to politics in the later part of his prime ministership and those around him and Blair, Mandelson others of that ilk their definition, they talk about the centre if you read Peter Mandelson's memoir he talks about the centre ground in his foreword as if it's a geographical place, as if you buy a ticket and you go there and you stand there as if it's actually, you know, have we arrived? are we at the centre ground yet? we're here I mean I just don't share that view. It's, it's, it's a mad view to hold. The centre ground of British politics is where the British public is. Uh, and, and actually, it's a, moving, it's a moving target. And it has moved very slowly, but it's discernibly moved over the years. We are not in the, the centre is not in the same place as it was in the late 70s, as it was in the mid-80s, as it was in the late 90s, as it is now. And I think the politicians who understand that, and one of, Ed Miliband gets that, I think, and he said that on Sunday, when Andrew Marr interviewed him on Sunday and, and put the Blair comments to Ed Miliband about the centre ground. Ed Miliband said, I believe in the centre ground. I believe I'm firmly on the centre ground. The difference between me and you, Andrew, and me and Tony is that I believe there's a new centre ground, which is based around banking reform, which is based around tackling the media, which is based around tackling uh, unaccountable power. And I think he's right about that. I think that's something he fleshed out in his leadership campaign. And it's something he's held for many years. We tell a story in here about um, when he was at Harvard, one of his friends, an academic named Archon Fung, uh, who uh, is, a, is an academic at Harvard, and he remembers how they would have to... This was pre-Obama, of course. This is uh, 2003, when Kerry was kind of heading for defeat against Bush, 2003-04, and you know, everyone on the centre-left in America is depressed about what's going on. And, and, and Ed used to make the point to uh, Archon Fung that, look, the difference between Republicans and Democrats and the difference between the Tories and Labour is that the right are, uh, are preference changers and the left are preference adapters. So the right sees something and they change people's minds. They lead them in a direction. That's what Reagan did. That's what Thatcher did. That's what great leaders do. Uh, and, and great in the sense that I don't agree with them, but that's great act of leadership in leading people in a way you want them to go. Whereas... Often on the left, in particular, you find a situation and then you adapt yourselves to it. You follow, not lead. And he was clearly of the view that you have to change people's minds. Even if at 8 o'clock in the morning they start off in one place, by 8 o'clock in the evening you have to change that. Now that's a very ambitious task. The people around Ed Miliband called it Thatcheresque, if not Thatcherite, because it is about, you know, what did Tony Blair, Tony Benn used to say? He said that Margaret Thatcher is a prophet. She's not a political leader, she's a prophet. She changed the way people thought, felt, believed. That's the true sign of a leader. As for Blair's point about winning votes, I must make this point about Tony Blair. He said in that progress lecture that New Labour finished in 2007, it died, and then from then on it was a different administration. The people around Blair and the people around David Miliband last year, their position is it was all hunky-dory till Blair went, then Brown came along and messed it up. That is just not true. Look at the facts. Under Tony Blair's watch, between 1997 and 2005, Labour lost 4 million votes. Under Brown, they lost another million votes. Between Blair and Brown, they lost 5 million votes. The idea that Blair was some kind of crazy election-winning machine right till the very end, it just doesn't stand the test. You look at the 2005 election, he won with fewer votes than David Cameron won last year, thanks to our bizarre electoral system, which some have decided to keep, uh, and thanks to the fact that he is up against Michael Howard. Um, so... 
I just don't buy this idea that okay. you know everything was going hunky dory and it all went downhill. Yeah. So we're still talking about the past. Uh, uh, where's Mike front at the top? Thirteen go, years. Go to the, go to the back, years. and then who on this half? Actually, I'm not taking anybody from over there. So let's take the guy, please, in the blue top. Let's start with you, please, sir, down there. What, how would you advise uh, what you call David, David um, Miliband? Um, how would you advise David Miliband? Miliband yes, to what you call to uh, make Labour uh, winnable, I mean, to make Labour Party win. Uh, would you have some advice for David? David, um, uh, yes. For David Miliband, yeah, advice yes. on that. Uh, because I think. Uh, do you mean Ed or do you mean David? Sorry. Do you mean Ed or David? Which brother? I mean David. Okay. So what, sh what should David do now? Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, take that. Okay. Good question. Good question. Yeah. Why um, Labour has been so poor when in opposition on a, a number of issues like that? I'll give her some examples. Um, housing benefit, huge amount of information put out by the DWP civil servants just to show what the impact would be. Complete failure by the Labour administration. A few MPs, Karen Buck, were different, but, but a failure. Pensions, the, a, bill, a, a failure to explain that pensions are about avoiding poverty. So if, if one takes, say, housing, one of the major failures of the Labour um, administration, for the, uh, and yet when um, Ed Miliband gives a speech about three weeks ago, the Monday famous policy speech, which was basically a fairly feeble speech, but on housing, all he comes up with is perhaps to let housing to people who can who volunteer, mm. which would reduce the amount of housing, social housing, let to yeah. those in most need. What's your analysis of the failure, of the extent of that failure in the last months? Okay, that's interesting. Have we got time for one more down? This, yeah, gentleman. So much of politics now is about positioning yourself in the media. If there is an Ed government, what sort of policies can we expect? Okay, yeah, that sort of works, doesn't it? So, what should the other Miliband do? And then the interesting point about how do you start creating a policy platforms? Are, are they missing tricks? Which takes us neatly into the next Ed okay. Miliband government, apparently. Okay. Um, well, let's deal with David first. Um, uh, I suspect David wouldn't want to take very much advice from me, but um, no. um, the, he's, you know, it's an interesting position he's found himself in. Um, we report in the book about how you know, he wanders around Portcullis House, which is the offices of, of the Parliament, the new offices for MPs. Uh, you know, he's often on his own. He often looks rather tortured. People ask him how he is. He repeats the question back to them, how am I? You know, he's, he's clearly not over it. He's not over it at all. You'll, 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 some of you may have seen his comments at the Hay Festival recently where you know, he was asked about whether he's over it. Is he bitter? And he clearly didn't deny it. He did an interview with Rachel Cook in The Observer a few months ago where he kept referring to the Electoral College made its decision. Not the he couldn't bring himself to say the party did because he clearly in his head still thinks, I won two out of three sections of that college. Um, uh, he gave an interview to a northern newspaper where, he's, where someone asked him, Are you, you know, have you given up your leadership? I mean, he goes, who knows what will happen in the future? You know, really, you know, he's not over it at all. As I said, how could he be for so many years? But he's in this weird limbo land where he's gone off and he's teaching a few days at his old school. Uh, he's on the board, I think, of Sunderland FC. Um, 
he's giving foreign policy speeches as an ex-foreign secretary. Um, but he's in a really difficult place because he's neither on board nor has he gone away. And that's quite hard for Ed Miliband. You'll see on, in the Andrew Moore interview on Sunday, one of the questions was, did you get rid of Shadow Cabinet elections so you could bring your brother back? Now, Ed does want to bring David back, and he offered him a, the Shadow Chancellorship straight after uh, the victory last September. Now, David took all those days and on the Wednesday, went back to London and wore that rather odd shirt and said, look, I'm not... I, you know, I'm going to spend more time with my family, etc., etc., which I thought was a little bit disingenuous, although I understood, you know, it's very upsetting for him. He did go through the whole campaign saying, if I lose, I will serve my brother. In fact, I went on a, t- I went on a, re- I went on a TV program with him, uh, the, the politics show on Sunday. Uh, I went on with him two weeks before, and it's one of those things where the two journalists get to ask the politician a question, and I said, are you going to quit politics after you? Because I know I couldn't serve under my brother. Uh, I don't have one, but I just sort of wind him up. And I said, um, I couldn't say on the Go on, go on, you can do that. And he said, oh, yes, we're brothers. You know, that's the difference between us and journalists. He said, ha, ha, how ironic. <laughs> he, said, he said, that's the difference. You know, of course I would, and we love each other, and blah, blah, blah. And that was his position. And then obviously when it happened, it was so bitter. And Louise, his wife, was so upset about it and very upset with Ed and, and his wife. And that's one of the things we explore in the book about the, the crazy fallout from the brothers where, you know, he doesn't even take his kids to his brother's kid's birthday party. I mean, that's how bad relations are when they live 10 minutes apart. That's pretty sad. Um, uh, but So when you have that issue, you have David lingering, and people who don't like Ed will coalesce around David. So the thing about David is not like he's encouraging a revolt, but his mere presence allows those people, especially on the right of the party, to say, it's our, you know, our Labour's lost leader, you know, the king across the water. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side. If David were leader today, everyone would be saying, David, he's so robotic, he can't speak, he's so right-wing. If only we'd picked Ed, he's so young and dynamic. and he was a, you know, it's all, That's always the case. The grass is always greener on the other side. Um, I think he should either go off and do a kind of IMF World Bank job uh, or... or well, not literally a bank job, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> or... or he should come back and serve in the shadow cabinet. That's one of the things we saw on the brother. And, you know, add some firepower to Labour Parliament. I don't agree with everything David says, but no one can deny he's a very impressive politician, has formidable intellect, uh, and has, you know, good experience in a lot of areas and can bring some strength to that front bench team. The problem is he's in neither of those places, and I think that's a problem for him. I think for his own good, he should decide what he's going to do. Let's see. I, I suspect he won't come back to shadow cabinet because he doesn't agree with the direction his brother's taking the party in, and there is that much difference between them. On the two other questions about uh, the issues, I, I agree with you 110%. I think, uh, I think that's where Labour have wholly let down uh, a lot of Labour voters uh, and that's where Ed Miliband's leadership has been too cautious. It's what I mentioned earlier about being serious. On the deficit, on cuts, I would like them to take a much more oppositional and populist stance. Uh, and I think there is this sense that, no, no, we've got to be serious. We've got to, be, uh, we've got to, look, uh, we've got to look credible to the markets. We've got to do all these things which actually don't make any economic sense. You can look at people like Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winners, who say, this policy is rubbish. You know, actually, there is no place for cuts right now. So I, don't agree, I, d- I agree with you on that. And look, is he as left-wing as I'd like him to be or you'd like him to be? No, he's not. Uh, is he much better than his predecessors? I think he is. Does he genuinely care uh, about the gap between rich and poor? I think he does, and I think you can see other policies, for example, uh, things on the high pay commission, things on the high pay side, things on the living wage side, uh, things like going to the Hyde Park rally. I don't think you can underestimate what a big deal that was for him to go and how much pressure he was under not to go. I think those are good things. Do they cancel out the bad things? Of course not. But, you know, you and I are not politicians, so we get to snipe from the sidelines. Do you think there's a problem of um, capacity as well? I mean, you, you were saying the party's united. And yet, beyond dead balls, at least perhaps to the sort of general public, and I realise we're in extraordinary times mm. where, you know, housing benefit doesn't necessarily rise up the media agenda. 
that there isn't much firepower. I don't know if I've got a kind of rosy-tinted no, view. I seem no, to remember, no, no, I agree with you 100%. I seem to remember Robin Cook... Yes, arms to Iraq, you, know. you remember, yeah. Uh, to be fair again, they, that was a much more experienced cabinet, and yeah. they had been waiting for years. Here you have the opposite. They came out of government, and all the kind of so-called greybeards quit and went off with their toys, which is kind of a good thing, let's be honest. Uh, you know, Alistair Darling, Jack Straw, see you later. Um, and uh, Alan Johnson, through no fault of his own, but he wasn't doing a good job anyway, in my view, even though I like Alan, but mm. he wasn't a great shadow chancellor, and Ed Balls has been much better. I wrote recently that we don't have a cabinet, we don't have a shadow cabinet, we have a cabinet of shadows, and it's a team effort. Opposition is a team effort, and you can't just say Ed Miliband do everything on your own. You know, I know we live in a presidential age, but you need to have other people out and about in these, you know, in these areas like housing and pensions and all these areas where there are open goals for the opposition and where the coalition government is either doing absolutely callous and horrific things or they're doing mad things which they then U-turn on. Uh, I think there's a lot of open goals, and yes, a lot of opposition haven't done it. If, you, if you're a journalist, you get about 17 emails a day from Ed Balls's team, I and mean, those people don't sleep. I mean, they work 24-7, seven days a week. They're the most relentless opposition team. And you wish you could get a little bit of that energy from Ed Balls and give it to some of the other shadow cabinet ministers because a lot of the rest of them are just coasting. In their defence, I would say, it's very hard uh, as an opposition in a coalition age to get any notice because yeah. the media are not interested in Labour. I think Alistair Campbell had a great line recently that Labour is the third most interesting party right now in Britain because why would you cover Labour and the opposition's view on anything when the, actually there's an opposition party in government? You could talk about the Lib Dems and Tory splits. If there's a big row about the NHS, you interview Andrew Lansley and then you go off and interview Simon Hughes. Why do you need to go off and interview uh, John Healy, who's the Shadow Health Secretary? who's fighting to get heard. So there is that problem as well. Just to take the gentleman's question here, remind me again what you were asking about the government and policies? Sorry. Um, I would say if there is a, uh, an Ed government, what sort of policies do you think we'll pursue? Because most of political reporting at the moment is who's up, who's down, yeah. how they're presenting themselves, think, rather than what they would do. I think it's very hard to talk about policies right now. A, because most oppositions don't devise policies less than a year after leaving government, and it would be mad to do that. And if you look at David Cameron, for example, in 2005, 2006, he'd said far less about policy and values and approaches than Ed Miliband and Ed Balls had. He was busy kind of hugging hoodies, hugging huskies, hugging whatever was coming his way. Um, <laughs> I think the same applies to William Hague in 1997, who just went on on about the euro. Uh, so I think in that sense, actually, they've done more. I think it's a bit unfair on the policy side. You hear this kind of put down all the time, oh, it's a blank sheet. Well, that's a good thing that it's a blank sheet. What do you want them to do? Come out and defend everything they did for 13 years? You can't have it both ways. You can't say Labour government, learn your lessons, apologise, and on the other hand, say, oh, don't come up with new things. Uh, I think what's key is that what he does have is he has a sense of a direction of where he's going. That They, they claim that they have three pillars. The, the Ed people claim that they have three pillars that are guiding them. Uh, one is this idea of the British promise, this idea of intergenerational change, and the idea that the next generation should not be uh, poorer than this generation. And actually, if you look at what Mervyn King has said, if you look what the Institute of Fiscal Studies has said, we're actually now seeing the biggest drop in living standards of 100 years, if not since the 19th century. Uh, so that's one area which they're looking at. How do you get jobs? How do you get degrees, etc., that are affordable, that pay money? How do you recreate the political economy? The other issue they're looking at is, for example, the squeeze middle. This comes back to the equality point. The idea is not just a gap between rich and poor. Actually, it's a gap between the rich and everyone else. That's where the real inequality is now, the, the kind of top 1% or the top 0.1% uh, who absorb so much of wealth and income in this country. And looking at how do you redress that gap and devising what will be, have to be quite 
radical policies uh, to, to deal with, with, with inequ income inequality in particular. Um, and the third point is, the third pillar is the blue labour idea. The idea that labour was too uh, reliant on the state, on government, on bureaucracy, on targets, on telling people what to do. And actually, there's a labour tradition that says you trust people with power. Localism is not a bad thing. Uh, entrusting communities and building relationships and trusting civil society and volunteer groups and charities and churches, etc., uh, is actually a good way of building up social capital, which is also a good way of having a good society rather than kind of the big society or the difference might be very narrow between them. Yeah. And in a sense, his, his problem is that, as you say, he can't fill in too much of that detail. So when, when asked about the squeezed middle, he can't put a figure on it, he can't... Well, you say can't put a figure on it. Actually, actually that's not the, true since then he has. Defining not super rich is, is, is quite a broad... No, I think they say, I think they say broadly is between 20 and 60, but it depends where you live. I mean, this is a key point that's glossed over by London-based media in that, you know, what you, earning £40,000 and having two kids uh, living in, in London is not the same thing as, this, uh, you know, earning £40,000 and two kids living sure. somewhere else in the country. Uh, so I think there's, that's issues. The squeeze middle is quite interesting because, again, you have this negativity. John Humphreys did that interview which everyone said was a car crash interview. You have to understand one thing about journalists. It really frustrates me. There's a huge pack mentality. One person says something, everyone else just falls in behind. Very few people, conventional wisdom is rife in my industry. So you have one person, ah, oh, that was a bad interview, bad interview. The next person, a bad interview. People who haven't even heard it go, oh, did you hear about his car crash interview? Did you even hear the interview? What was bad about it? I don't know, but I heard it was bad. You know, this is <laughs> unfortunately infects, it infects political journalism in this country. It's so frustrating. You know, the same thing happened with Cameron. Oh, he's going to win a majority. Oh, he's going to win a majority. And I remember writing a piece saying, actually, there might be a hung parliament. And people say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, this is a kind of the pack mentality. And that interview wasn't so bad. And here's the irony. Guess who uses, guess who I hear all the time using the phrase squeeze middle every time he talks about the economy? John Humphreys. The man who mocked it now uses it as part of his daily language. It actually has quite a lot of resonance. I think people hear that phrase and get it. They get what it means, the time poverty, the financial poverty, uh, the way in which living standards are being squeezed. Uh, and I think, you know, on that sense... That is a good theme to pursue. Yeah, obviously you can't fill in lots of policies. But sometimes you throw up a kind of wild card. You know, Ed Balls came up with that, uh, um, you know, drop the VAT on fuel, mm. which kind of sent the Tories into kind of tailspin because fuel is such a sensitive issue. They remember the fuel strikes of 2000. So occasionally, yeah, you throw out something that's kind of like a hand grenade to yeah. disrupt things. But you can't just come up with a kind of manifesto four years before an election against two different parties who are in government. Indeed. Let's take another round of questions. So let's... So we'll actually just take this chap here because he's had a hand, his hand up a lot. Then we're going to go over there. And at the top, um, gentleman at the front there. Sorry. Where is that? Next time. Far away. Hi. I was just a bit curious. Um, you described Ed Miliband as a critical, uh, yourself as a critical friend of Ed Miliband. Um, I was just curious as to. Uh, when your book was released, there was a certain amount of negative press in regard, uh, towards him. Um, what did you make of that? And um, was there any element of guilt? <laughs> what a good question. You didn't even ask him about what how, a good question. You didn't even ask him how much Dacre paid him. It's not Dacre, it's Mail on Sunday, Charlie. You're a Sorry, media commentator, yeah, yeah, yeah. you should know the difference. Well, Dacre runs that as well. Um, I think you're right to say it's um, slightly weird that Ed took on his brother and that people have that in mind. It's kind of like the Klitschko brothers in heavyweight boxing who <laughs> promised their mum they'd never fight each other. That was a very good but idea. now those two, in fact, run that d uh, boxing division like a cabal. It's the two of them that run the show. Was there ever any chance that Ed and David were going to team up together at any stage in that c their careers? Was that considered or was it always going to be adversarial? Good question. It seems you thought, isn't it? It's a bit like Yvette 
an end. You know. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one over there, gentleman in the pink. How do you think um, Ed Miliband uh, takes on the gravitas that people expect of a leader? I think that he doesn't seem prime ministerial at the moment, and there's been a recent poll in The Economist that showed that he scored very poorly indeed uh, when asked that question. Uh, and, and on that, how do you think he grabs leadership on things? Uh, you, you've mentioned the, the news of the world thing. I, I'm not convinced that, that was leadership because so many other people have been talking about that for so long. If the only trick to being a leader is being more advanced than David Cameron, who obviously employed Andy Coulson, that's, that's not a lot of leadership there. But how did he grab, you know, grasp an ethyl and sort of show some leadership, even if you don't firm up policy at this stage? Um, good questions. Uh, let's go, let's, if I go backwards and deal with that one first. On, on leadership, um, I, th I agree with you. It's a real issue. The, you know, we talk about it in the book, we call it the Neil, the Neil Kinnock problem, which was nice guy, great speaker, clearly decent good values, popular with the public in many ways, led in the polls, but people couldn't really envisage him standing on, on the doorstep of number 10. They couldn't see him at international summits, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and that is a real problem for him, and he has, to get, he has to really try and get over that. How does he do it? As I said, one thing is he's got to deal with his media appearance, because a lot of what we're talking about here is perception. It's not actually about weighing up the relative you know, qualities and virtues and policies of two individuals. It's about David Cameron looks and sounds more prime ministerial. Of course he does. Don't underestimate you know, the power of the British class system. Here is a guy, you know, a product of Eton, a very, very confident. You know, look at the difference in upbringing and backgrounds uh, of the two, of the well, two of them. On, hang on, Ed, 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 Ed's North London liberal. You know, is a very North London, North London son of two immigrants. I mean, oh, come on, come on. Oh, come on. Are you, yeah. so you're saying David Cameron and Ed Miliband had the same, same upbringing? You're saying yeah, the, I'm same, not saying the same. same you, but you did. You just compared the two. I didn't say the same. I said that the difference is not have particularly wide. Have a stock and Eton. If you read the book, are two huge differences, Charlie. No, I know. If you're going to make that comparison, that kind of sums up the problem here. My, my you're under, this, is the, this is the past that David Cameron has been given. There is a huge difference between the background that David Cameron has in his parents' backgrounds and Eton. I'm not saying anything wrong with it. It's not going to be a class war point. I'm just talking about the reason, one of the reasons yeah, he is so confident and, can't, and comes across, I don't deny it, as more prime ministerial. To compare to Ed Miliband, uh, who came, who's, you know, whose father took the last boat to England, walked 60 miles, and whose mother came to England at the age of 12, and able to speak English and went to a local comprehensive school. I think that is a big difference and I don't think you can underestimate the difference in that. Um, and you know, David Cameron, anyway, well, let's not into that, but I do think there's an issue of perception. I think the media image is very, very important in terms of media strategy and he has to sort out how he looks and sounds on TV. He's actually having an operation uh, on, his, uh, on his nose for sleep apnea, he says. Some of us think it's for other things. So the, strange, um, the strange thing again, sorry to interrupt, the strange isn't it? When we say prime ministerial, I wonder what we mean. Exactly. Because in a sense, he's already, you're right, if you meet him, uh, you know, I've been in a seminar with him, extraordinarily intelligent, serious, thoughtful. You can imagine him at any diplomatic conference being extraordinarily impressive. Well, he has been. I mean, one of the, so what one, one of the interesting that? things, just on that note, yeah. at the Copenhagen conference, of course, where it was all going pear-shaped and did in the end, wasn't a great result. You can, again, you can go back and on the BBC website, and we describe it in the book, but you can watch the video. There's a, there's a, there's a fascinating moment where he turns up, unshaved, <laughs> four o'clock in the morning, having changed out of pyjamas, open neck shirt, where the Venezuelan delegate has cut her hand and is bleeding. The Sudanese delegate says, this is the Holocaust, it's like the Nazis. We're not going <laughs> to sign up to this. And it's all about 
start and the Danish Prime Minister hasn't slept in about 48 hours and is about to bang the gavel down and end it all without any kind of agreement and Ed Miliband goes and gives a speech in front of 150 delegates from around the world and gets a standing ovation that you can watch now that for me says actually this guy's got a lot of potential he's not the finished product uh, but that's at the age of whatever it was 39 whatever it was 40 uh, and, uh, uh, and as a climate change minister had only been in the cabinet for two years I mean what we mean by Prime Minister look at the CV here's, an, here's a bit of an irony David Cameron and Tony Blair both became Prime Minister having never served in any ministerial job. It's going to increase it. It never happened in the past. You had to go through all the big offices of state. Jim Callan did all three before becoming Prime Minister. Um, Margaret Thatcher was Education Secretary, etc. Uh, you, you have Tony Blair and, and, and David Cameron having never done a single ministerial job, went straight into number 10. You talk about inexperience, young, and it shows in Cameron. Uh, shows in Cameron the decisions he takes, in my view. Ed Miliband actually has more experience in government as a climate change secretary uh, and the cabinet office secretary and as someone who worked in the who, who arrived as one of the three most powerful people in the second most important government department at the age of 23 years old in 19... In, sorry, 27 years old in 1997. Uh, he's got a lot of experience and he's been there and done that and got the T-shirt. Uh, that's the irony. But as you say, I think we, we, what, we, what we're alluding to and what's in the background is about image. What we say Prime Minister, I think we mean image. We think we mean uh, at the dispatch box, at the podium. I hope those are things he can learn. If he can't beat that problem, then yes, he has a real issue. Come Mm. I don't think it's the review so much the, as I said I, my position on the policy is fine I think it's more when he does speak he has to speak with conviction in my view and authenticity and without sounding cautious without sounding like you're triangulating or trying to find the, kind of the middle ground because people are fed up of that I think as I said earlier with Alex Salmon, Boris Johnson, Ken, Ken Clark you look at who the popular politicians are uh, they're not those people and even David Cameron has an ability of breaking out of that you said on Murdoch just very quickly before we take the other two questions on Murdoch I think you're being a little bit unfair it isn't just a matter of saying you shouldn't have hired Andy Coulson because that's the easy option he did actually go and say Rebecca Brooks should go from the very beginning and anyone who knows anything about Labour politicians know that they live in fear of these people and it is a big deal to say actually we're going to go to war with the Murdoch Empire I mean we have two of our most senior police officers who are alleged to have backed off from News International because they were worried their alleged affairs would be exposed in the news of the world I mean that's the kind of what was it Hugh Grant said on question time last week there's a protection racket going on here and I think it's very important the leader obviously comes out and says let's stop that and let's stop the beast sky be takeover and thereby whether he likes it or not declare war on Murdoch. To take the other two questions, uh, on, um, on Klitschko, the Klitschko brothers, it's a very good analogy because they do say we won't fight because our mother would be really upset. And of course, the, one of the things we explore in the book is the Marian position. And you know, what was Marian's view? Which brother did she back? I mean, we talked to friends of hers and friends of Ed's who say, deep down in our heart of hearts, she backed Ed. Obviously not publicly, she didn't actually cast a vote. No mother would choose in that way between two sons. But value-wise, Ed is to the left. Ed was always seen as the one, the, the, the flame-bearer, the torch-carrier for Ralph, his, his late father, in values term, if not in ideological terms. And, and, and there's this, you know, some friends of Marian told us that there was almost like a division in personality where Ralph was very austere, very serious, very princely and, and those qualities came to David and Marion, very impetuous more emotional, more dynamic uh, more passionate and that's came, that's, that somewhat came to Ed, so I don't know, Tony Benn who knows the family very well says he thinks that she backed uh, Ed in her heart of hearts I mean what's interesting is we report a conversation from Marion where she fled to New York where her sister lives in September last year, because she, she was getting kind of hassled by the media, etc. Although the Mirror sent photographers after her to New York, uh, and she bumps into a friend of Ralph's called Leo Panich, who's another socialist academic who lives in Canada, and she bumps into him in New York, and he says, 
you must be so proud that your two sons right now in London, you know, Britain, they're dominating the news, they're about to, one of them's going to be leader of the lay body. And she says, what do you mean pride? You know, pride is something you take in children. These guys are adults. I'm not proud of them. And if you ask me, I would, I would have told them not to get involved in this game in the first place. Um, so, you know, she comes from a kind of old labour position where the differences between them are not so great. You know, they're, they're, you know it's, it's David, it's Ed, it's Brown, it's Blair, it's new, it's not. Um, and, and for her, and also her husband, of course, had the view that the Labour Party as a vehicle of social change it just doesn't work. It's too, it's, it's too wedded to the Parliament. It's not radical enough. Uh, so the, the really interesting question is, you know, did she actually want either of them to even get involved in politics? They never, neither parent ever came out against either of their sons. Um, but they, you know, they, they were proud of them as you know, doing well. But you know, she would often complain about Blair a great deal. They would, the nickname they had for her was Wow, because whenever David, in particular David, because he worked for Blair, came home uh, with a new policy or reform, she would say, Why, oh, why, oh, why? And they would say, you know, this, this was her wow position. She, would get very, she hated Blair. But here's the interesting thing, you know, neither brother went and checked it with her first, as far as we're aware. Neither brother, and you talk about the Klitschko brothers, I mean, the problem about the Klitschko brothers, here's the fundamental difference with the Millibands and the Klitschko brothers. The Klitschko brothers said to each other, let's not fight each other. The Millibands brothers never had that discussion. That's the really weird part, more weird than actually running against each other, is the fact that they never saw it coming down the track. They never saw a couple, you and I, if we, when our siblings might say, in a couple of years' time, this is what's going to happen. How do we deal with it? Let's talk about it now. They never did. There was no conversation in 08, in 09, in 10. David says there was a conversation in 10. Ed says there wasn't. We explore in the prologue of the book, even the week they stood, Ed says, I went round the Wednesday after the general election and told David in his house, in his lounge, sitting in his chair, David, I'd like to, I'm going to run. And David said to me, I'd rather you didn't, I'd rather my brother didn't run against me, but if you want to run, Fine, I'm not going to stand in your way. David says, never happened. He never stood foot in my house. That's an astonishing story to come across. But the fact that they can't even agree on whether they decided and whether they told each other that they were going to run against each other. That, for me, is, is tragically dysfunctional. Um, to come back to uh, the first question, uh, the, the awkward question of the night, uh, which was the negativity around the book. We serialised our book with the mail on Sunday, which, let's put it this way, is not a critical friend of Ed Miliband, more just a critic of Ed Miliband. Um, we serialised our book with Ed Miliband. That upset Ed Miliband's people a great deal. They threatened to cut off any access that they had offered us, even though we were unauthorised biography, we weren't official biography, we weren't doing it with their permission or uh, with their approval. Um, and the uh, Biteback, who are our publishers, do all of their serialisations with the mail on Sunday. Uh, we did the serialisation. Look, in a dream world, in an ideal world, I wouldn't have had it serialised in the Mail on Sunday. I'm not a fan of the Mail on Sunday's politics and the way that they reported it perhaps wasn't ideal, um, perhaps wasn't the best representation of the actual theme of the book. It's interesting when you read the reviews of the book that have been coming in the last few days in the FT, in the stand, etc. They're all pointing out how pro-Ed the book is and how positive it is about Ed uh, compared to obviously the news reporting from the serialisation, which was, oh my God, this guy stabbed his brother and uh, uh, you know, there's chaos in the Labour Party, fratricide side, etc. Um, uh, do I feel guilty? No. I think I would rather it have been in the Guardian or the Independent, uh, but unfortunately that's just not the way the book serialisations work anymore, uh, and that's just not the way the industry works, and it's not the way the publishers work anymore, and at the end of the day, actually the Mail on Sunday serialisation, the actual extract, were very fair. They didn't mess around with our words, they didn't change in any way. Uh, it's just the reporting around it, and it came on a weekend, which was a crazy bad weekend for Ed Miliband. Mm. On the Friday, Ed Balls, all these memos appeared accusing Ed Balls of having plotted against Blair, totally exaggerated by the way when you read the memos. On the Saturday, 
the speech David Miliband was supposed to have given was released to the Guardian on the Saturday, which weirdly, allegedly, he read to his wife in the cab on the way back to London. That's weird. Can you imagine reading out the speech? What, what, what do you do? What does the wife do? Where does she look? Um, and then on Sunday, and then on Sunday, our book was serialised, and there was a big crisis of leadership, or etc. But then, interestingly, on Monday. He gave a strong speech. I agree with the gentleman up there. There were things in there that I didn't like, but it was a strong speech. Got a lot of notice. Sky ran on the whole speech. Sky News would never roll on the whole of an Ed Miliband speech. Uh, he got that attention, which they crave. And I was talking to Maurice Glassman, who's one of these blue labour thinkers and advisors of Ed Miliband. And he said, I love the fact that your book caused so many problems. Ed needs to be put under pressure all the time. It's the only way he's going to come out fighting. Exactly. Listen, I'm going to pause there because I agree with Mehdi. It's a great, it's a great book, and I think... It's a vital part of the process, uh, the political process for the Labour Party and for Ed Miliband and indeed for, for David as well, I guess. And it's a, a really important contribution and a serious and um, entertaining read, if that's the right, the right thing to say about what is obviously such a painful period as well as such a fascinating period for those people involved. Now, so I'm delighted that you did write it with James and I'm delighted that you came here tonight. Thank you very that's much for really having me. That's a really good session. Thank coming. you very, very much. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.